0: This episode is hosted by Lee Atchison. Lee Atchison is a software architect, author, and thought leader on cloud computing and application modernization. His most recent book, Architecting for Scale, is an essential resource for technical teams looking to maintain high availability and manage risk in their cloud environments. Lee is the host of his podcast, Modern Digital Business, an engaging and informative podcast produced for people looking to build and grow their digital business with the help of modern applications and processes developed for today's fast-moving business environment. Subscribe at mdb.fm and follow Lee at LeeAcheson.com.
1: Dataset is a log analytics platform provided by Sentinel One that helps DevOps IT engineering, and security teams get answers from their data across all time periods, both live streaming and historical. It's powered by a unique architecture that uses a massively parallel query engine to provide actionable insights from the data available. John Hart is a distinguished engineer leading the EventDB team, where he's responsible for the time series database that powers the dataset product. John is my guest here today. John, welcome to Software Engineering Daily.
0: Thanks, Lee. I appreciate it.
1: So tell me about Dataset. What does it do?
0: Yeah, so the original motivation for Dataset was to try to have a unified source for server observability. So rather than having one place for traces, one place for log files, one place for metrics, that's which is a difficult thing to have to manage. And you're always kind of worried about that. Why not just have one place? So that was kind of the original insight that led Steve Newman, our, our original founder, to found the company. And over time, because we kept doubling down on our own custom database, you know, we're not using someone's off-the-shelf database, we're not using Elasticsearch, what have you, because we kept developing and really putting a lot of our effort into this database, we ended up with a fairly general purpose, as you say, super super high-scale data store, database, essentially, that has applications beyond server observability, which is why we ended up being acquired by Sentinel-1, because they have a similar set of problems in terms of just masses of data that you need to be able to search, analyze, graph, chart, slice, dice, etc.
1: Cool, yeah, so this is a... So uh, I, I'm not sure if you know my history, I came from New Relic and at New Relic, we had a similar set of, of issues and we built our own data database there too with insights and uh, similar sort of of issues, but I think you've taken it to another um, level in what you've done. Can you talk a little bit more about what, what it does that's over and above what the existing off-the-shelf databases are today?
0: Yeah, yeah. So yeah, when I think of New Relic, I think of, you know, APM, a lot of metrics and a pretty nuanced hierarchy of like, dimensional roll-ups for those metrics so you can slice and dice along those dimensions really, really fast and really, really well. We tackled a slightly different part of the problem space, which is you know, starting with just server log events, keeping that data in a non-aggregated form and, and you know kind of doubling down on throwing resources at making that data queryable for a long time at as low a cost as possible. Right? There's no such thing as performance. There's only performance per dollar. Uh, so then... Because we focused on that and are able to throw, you know, thousands upon thousands of cores at each individual search, what we ended up, or what Sentinel-1 ended up realizing is it's, it's the same problem. Server observability and security have actually a very similar problem on both sides. So server observability, we're collecting log files and we don't want to aggregate them. We want to be able to do debugging by looking at the individual log lines. Security is the same type of thing. If you have, you know, 100,000 laptops, like your GE or somebody... And you want to know, first of all, you want to make sure you don't get hacked in the future. So you need to get your kind of threat indicators pushed down to all those endpoints so they can block that activity. But the other kind of next level part of it is hey, did I get hacked six months ago? And the only way you can figure that out is if you have a recording of every single thing, every one of your systems did six months ago. And you can't aggregate it, you've got to keep all of those, that entire haystack. So that's what we're all about, right? Is this enormous haystack of data and making it so we can throw as many cores as possible at searching it.
1: So it's all about number of cores, right? It's There's no magic algorithm of, of course, like aggregation is a magic algorithm. There's no other magic algorithm like that. It's how much CPU power can we sh- throw in for a short period of time to access all that data? Is it? Is there anything else you are able to do with the data? Uh, I mean, what I mean is, um are you does is is there unique indexing you can do that reduces the cpu requirements or are there is there anything like that you can do that yeah. helps you
0: yeah so i mean one of our kind of initial claims to fame in our early blog posts was basically saying we just brute force it <laughs> like that was that was like this is how we sol- solve this problem um whereas you know document databases like an elastic search type system or a solr type system they're all about the indexes um And there's a variety of reasons uh, why indexes are great for kind of human-generated data with maybe 50,000 unique words in the English language that might be in use. But when you get to machine data, indexes are not going to help you as much as you want. And because they write-amplify, it becomes highly problematic if you're putting a petabyte or 10 petabytes a day into a system. Any sort of write-amplification is a problem. You want to go the other way and figure out really good compression. So that's kind of the first piece, which is we don't use global indexes. We do slice up the data into these individual, like the individual root atomic unit of data in our system is just a file that lives in S3. So we've separated the compute from the storage for the database problem. Now, if you have a repetitive query, like you're alerting on something, or you've got a dashboard with, you know, a hundred plots on it, you don't want to have to issue a hundred queries to draw your dashboard over a month of data. That's going to be very, very slow. So there is A metric store also, part of this whole thing, in addition to what we call the event store, which holds the data in its non-aggregated form, we also have a metric store, which is basically on-demand summarization. So during the ingest pipeline, we'll watch as events stream by, and if they match one of the things that you're interested in, maybe that's a plot on a dashboard or an alert, a query that you issue every minute or something along these lines, we'll pre-calculate the answer to those queries as well on the side. And so we've got the metrics and the logs both exist in the system, but the way we've got it architected is the metrics are always kind of derived from the logs.
1: Got it. So the, the common things that you expect people to put on their dashboards are pre-calculated as the data comes in, but yet you can always get at the raw data if you need to do any sort of deeper analysis.
0: Yeah, exactly. And you don't really have to set it up. You just make a dashboard and then we notice that that happened. And then we start backfilling all of those series. So it's available to you.
1: Got it. Got it. So, um, so what was your path in getting to uh, leading this EventDB
0: team?
1: Th- tell yes. me a little bit more about how you got into this role.
0: Sure. So it's actually, it's it's a slightly involved story, but I think it's a fun one. So I'll I'll, I'll give you the full detail. So uh, prior to joining Scalar, which I joined in late 2015, I had my own software company, like a micro ISV that I started in 2012, or excuse me, 2002, <laughs> and then 12 years later sold it in 2014 and I was uh, an early user of Splunk, actually. Um, the whole idea of a custom search engine for your application logs was extremely useful for me and my company. We were involved in people's emails. So our customer support line was people saying, what happened to my email? And it's very important to be able to show them, no, no, I promise you, we did deliver it. <laughs> and if the person's saying they didn't get it, that's that's not us. We didn't cause that problem, right? People really care about emails. So we used Splunk a lot at the start. Um, but it was, you know, we're a small customer. They didn't have a SaaS offering at the time, so you had to do it locally. There was just a number of issues with it. And so then I read a blog post by Steve Newman. So Steve Newman, as I mentioned before, is the founder of Scaler, you know, way back when. Before that, he was the founder of Rightly, which is what you and I know as Google Docs. So he was at Google for a long time after selling Rightly to Google and, you know, faced this observability problem. So anyway, I read a blog post by him describing this brute force approach. And it just it lightbulbed for me. I'm like, that is how we solve this problem. I like this technical approach. Uh, and then I kind of forgot about it. I had other things to do. Then maybe six months later, Splunk, I was having problems with Splunk again. I don't want to dog on them too much, but this is what drove <laughs> me to try to change. And I was like, what was that company again? Like, Scalar, Scalier, something along these lines. So I found the blog post. I installed Scalar on a couple of my servers. And within a week, I was like, this is such a great, such a great system. So I I removed the competing solutions I was using. I was full in on Scalar. I really liked it. What I didn't know at the time is that I was one of like the first 10 customers of Scalar. (laughs) And I was the only one to date who had installed the Scalar agent, the little thing that collects the logs onto Windows machines. So that kind of started a, a number of dialogues with the people at Scalar. Like, how did you do that on Windows? Like, we didn't know that we supported that. Uh, so we kind of kind of became friendly through that. And at a certain point in time, uh, one of the emails I got back from the support team said, you've probably realized there's only two of us here. And I had noticed that all of my emails were written by a guy named Steve or a guy named Steven. But I thought that's because <laughs> they had a two-person support team who hilariously both had the same name. It turned out it was a two-person company who both hilariously... Had the same oh, name, geez. so I was super impressed. Right? I mean, this was—I had just thrown out a multi-billion-dollar public company's software to use their software instead. Uh, so, on kind of on the strength of that relationship, the customer, the early customer to founder relationship, we just kind of continued to deepen, you know, our trust in one another and like the amount of stuff we were talking about. So, once I left uh, the company that had acquired my prior company, I was deciding what to do next, and I was like. well, It was actually kind of straightforward. Scalar, I love this product. Why wouldn't I want to join this company? So at the time, it was a pretty small group, four or five people maybe. And Steve Newman had written the entire original backend. So it was a natural fit for me, having done database work in the past, to slot in with him. And we grew the team from there.
1: Cool, cool. Yeah. So you you mentioned Splunk and you know, I was I was going to say that over the last couple of decades, um, you know, log analytics has changed dramatically, right? And the early days of Splunk, logs were were very, very simplistic things that are I mean, they're useful for security, but not or, and for some problem diagnostics, but not really for metrics, right, in any meaningful way. At least not for the most part. But it's changed a lot over the last, let's say two decades. What do you think was the most dramatic change in the way that logs were used in the last two decades? Oh, that's an
0: interesting question. I think, and this has been a long time coming, but I think the advent of things like open telemetry and, you know, common log output across disparate systems has been to my mind, probably the biggest change. And it's still a change that's happening. But it was something that we didn't realize, we as a market, didn't realize we needed until we were pretty far into it, right? At a certain point, once you start bringing up, especially with the ease of deployability with Docker, like our dependency tree just keeps getting bigger. And each of your dependencies is emitting logs. And the extent to which those logs don't follow a common schema radically impacts their usability. And, you know, one of the things I say is like, nobody designs their logs like they design a SQL table, like a relational database table, um, but at a certain point, as you are onboarding more and more tools and more and more third-party software, especially at larger organizations, you actually kind of have to start organizing your logs like a database table, or you'll never be able to get the value out of them that you need. And so, just having a common set of you know conceits names that we can apply across all of our systems is, I think, the thing that can take you know un- undifferentiated mass of logs and turn them into actionable, understandable metrics and insights. You've got to bridge that gap. Ordered and structured. It. Yeah, you can do it one by one if you're an expert in this in the Postgres logs versus the this logs or the that logs. But to be able to do it holistically at the system level, we really need that kind of single unified way of talking about these processes.
1: And I imagine that same strategy has made logs more useful for things like uh, uh, machine learning, um, Capabilities. Do so you want to talk about that a little bit?
0: Yeah, yeah. That's a that's a really good point. Um, we actually just recently added a new feature called uh, I think we call them smart alerts, anomaly detection. I think might be the internal name that we used. But the idea is we've always had the ability for users of our system to define alerts. Tell me if the P ninety five of this API call exceeded 300 milliseconds over the past 10 minutes or 10 hours, whatever it is.
1: Traditional analytics. Traditional analytics,
0: traditional like explicit manual stuff, tailoring, making a rule, seeing a fire too often, getting annoyed, tailoring the rule, et cetera, right? So our first step kind of into the ML world in terms of what we've released to date Tries to make that problem go away where you can just say, here's the data, like, here's the metric over time, you tell me when something weird is happening. And so that's just a pretty straightforward way of doing ML on a given series over time to look for spikes and anomalies that aren't explained by nocturnal, diurnal, whatever, whatever cyclical you're on. But to your point... The next level is, well, I don't even have to, I shouldn't have to tell you the series. You can just look at all my series. And as long as those series have common names and common ways of thinking about it, that's much, it's just a way more tractable problem, if you can get into it that way. Um, one thing, like, this is more looking in the future, but something I've always wanted to do, like the next level of alerts and, and ML. And so... You can think of so we've got all of the all of the fields and all of the, the the features that contribute to that model, which to your point, it's good to unify those features, have a common set of names and then you've got like what are the goal states what are the what are the little pings that hit in our ml target that we're doing So if we've got alerts that's that's a human telling the system this is important to me. latency for this call matters latency for that call doesn't. So if you look at an alert firing, you can think of that as like an ml goal state that we want to train toward. And then if I've got, you know, 10,000 metrics series feeding into that, the the goal for me would be after I've defined my first set of alerts, you tell me, oh, you know what, every time this alert fires, five minutes beforehand, this other thing happens. And a lot of times that might be, yeah, that's obvious, like I got the disk space alert, (laughs) and five minutes before that, the disk space was getting low. But there will be insight in there, right? I mean, that's a perfect playground for ML to go through it and say, oh, there's actually a crazy correlation between these two things. Is it is it a real correlation or not? Humans still in the loop, but I'd love to see that happen.
1: Yeah, and, and I, I think that's great. Yeah, you, Some of the best insights I've seen from humans during – Uh, A problem resolution is to find that weird correlation and said, you know, when this happens, that happens, and then realize that the root cause of the problem is something unrelated to what you're currently looking at. And, And those are the people who can do that are, are in short supply and high demand and if we can automate that if machine learning and ai can do that for us that's going to be so valuable and and we're already making improvements in that area but we got a long ways to go you know uh, um you know you know one of the things that um machine learning is really good at is being able to make use of large quantities of data beyond what a human can actually look at and comprehend. Right. You know, so you can, you can find more, tr- more simple, um, uh, anomalies that would elude a human simply because it was impossible for a human to have spent the time and energy to actually look at that. But can you also use machine learning in the case of, of, of logs to find the larger, more, um, uh, I don't know if the word is time consuming or or more, you know, the, the, the the larger patterns, you know, things like, um, um, your overall CPU utilization in your application is going up nonlinearly compared to your, um, your product usage
0: right or or the biggest one of all your cost is going to be which right, right.
1: It relates to cost yes so you're going to have an issue here in in cogs uh, one at some point in time in the future yeah um you know the do you see machine learning you know machine learning is good at large scale close um analysis but is it also good or is it going to be good for large scale loose relationships huh
0: I mean, one of the goals of, you know, this kind of single pane of glass type view of your data, your cluster, your spend is to distill all of that stuff down just like two big numbers on a sheet or four big numbers on a street or or one graph, right? Uh, You lose so
1: much detail with that though. (laughs) Yeah,
0: for sure. For sure. And there's so much nuance that's hard to capture and you end up making choices along the way when you make that single pane of glass to decide what's important and what's not. I think you know, if the end goal is to have you know, the CTO level person have something they can look at once a week and feel good or bad about something and, and start pushing down from there, it would be great to have AI, ML in that mix. Um, but I, as you know, like I think we're a little bit further from it, right? Like the number of things that have to go right. So first of all is like normalizing the schema, getting the data to speak a regular language with the regular set of things. So that way you can associate something like cost down all the way down and all the way back up again, you know, that's, that's an engineering effort <laughs> in a bunch of other things. Uh, but then, yeah, that would be great if we can start like cost is a, is a great one, right? If um, and we do a lot of cost accounting because one of our payment models is kind of the default way you pay for, for data set is you ingest a certain amount of data and we hold on to it for you for a certain amount of time. And we just charge on the, you know, the area under the, the, under the curve, but we've got another billing model entirely called hindsight which is once you get out of like the all you can query maybe we hold your days for data for 30 days in all you can query mode but then we can hold on to it for another two years for you uh, where we don't really charge you anything to hold it we just charge you like a small vig on top of the s3 cost for us and the s3 cost for us is probably lower than the s3 cost for you because we're storing it in our columnar format which is super compressed and if we gave it back to you as json or whatever it would be much larger So at that point, we're actually charging you per query, you know, very much like an Amazon Redshift, Aurora. They've got so many products. Amazon does that too, right? And so we have a a whole model for that. So pushing cost accounting all the way down then lets you start bubbling it back up and to say, oh, look, these queries, these are the ones that kill us. Like we charge X, but they're costing us Y. And that's a problem. And so, yeah, I mean, regardless of kind of what your overall facet that you're optimizing for is uh it would be great to have that just continue as long as you can put that everywhere in your pipeline and all of your events are logging something relevant to that then we should be able to throw L at it to find correlations again to your point that might be a little bit less obvious
1: so we've we've talked a lot here excuse me i'm sorry we've talked a lot here about um use from an operational standpoint let's throw devops into the mix a little bit too can How can DevOps organizations that are, you know, trying to learn how to do development better based on how the system performs in an operation environment, how can they make use of this sort of data to help make better development choices?
0: Yeah, this is where we get into the Ouroboros kind of circular reasoning (laughs) (laughs) because we dog food the heck out of this product, right? I mean, we use it every day. There are a lot of days where I spend six hours analyzing and one hour doing two hours doing anything else at all. Like you spend so much time learning about things. so. For us, there's, there's a couple of things you know. At scale, there's this phrase like debugging in production, which is the, the note that like, no matter how good your test coverage is and how good your PRs are, and we pride ourselves on really caring about both of those things, you're going to miss stuff because the set of real world inputs is just too varied. And the set of conditions, especially race conditions, means you're into permutation land and you'll, you'll never cover it all. So if you're debugging in production, that means the data that's coming out of data set has to be really useful. like it's got to be there. You've got to be looking at it all the time as a developer or as a DevOps SRE type person. Uh, One of the things that we do personally to deal with this is, you know, of course we use feature flags, so code deploys and behavior changes are as much as possible uncoupled from one another. But the other thing we do a lot uh, and a pattern that's proved really useful over the years is just A-B switching given feature switches. We can say, okay, just try this on X percent of of calls of nodes or whatever, and and then log it. And you can actually do all of this ahead of time. You've got your dashboard ready to go where the two paths through the code are both plots on the dashboard. Then you turn it on and you just start watching it. So a lot of that type of stuff where you're looking at performance, you're looking at failure rates, whatever it is, like get that into an AB type mode across your fleet, whether that's internal to each node or just some nodes do one and some nodes do the other that type of thing, but you've got to have that loop be really, really tight. And people, you know, should be putting calendar reminders in like, when I enable this one hour later, look at that or whatever it is.
1: Cool. Yeah. So, so AB testing is a, certainly a way that the dev organization can make use of operational data. But what about uh, from a research standpoint? Um, You know, we, we, we want to consider adding this new feature, but we don't know, uh, we we need to do research based on past usage patterns to see whether or not this sort of a thing would be useful. I'm I'm making something up here now, you know. So, um, you were talking about the long term queries of you know like two years of data lying around that you charge by the query, and that's what made me think of this. But um, can you is this is this an effective utilization model to use that data to make uh, strategic development decisions and do you have customers that do that?
0: Yeah, I think, you know, the natural way to collect a lot of this data is at the server level, but in terms of usage, you know, ideally, and we do this some, we should do it more. You should also be logging this data into the same system from all the way from the browser, like the actual user touch point. So you can see what the users are doing as much as possible in this same tool. I um, you know, number one, that just gives you good context for all of the other analysis you're doing. Um, and there are definitely, you know, there's a whole product market segment specifically for that type of thing. What are people doing on your page? Uh, but having it disconnected from the rest of your analytics is a bummer, right? You should be logging that stuff from the browser all the way through to us. I'm sure our ProServe guys have, you know, best practices about that type of thing. The other place where this happens on, on the security side of the fence, right, is we have research guys. Their whole job is figuring out new hacks, new what what is the threat signifier? Somebody publishes a paper, what's called an IOC, an indicator of compromise. Is that in our data? How do we look for that in our data? So those guys are actually massive users of our cluster looking at historical data over long periods of time saying, oh, we just learned about this. Not only do we want to tell our customers if they got hacked, but we want to know what that means in our data. Like if this is a new hack, what does that actually look like when it happens to somebody's Windows machine or whatever it is? And then turn that into, you know, going from the world of internet publication (laughs) to actionable thing in a system requires a security researcher to say, oh, when we see these two things in close succession, that means blank.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And I imagine, hence your connection with uh, Sentinel-1 and why they were interested in this in the first place is this is a great research engine for looking for those sorts of hacks.
0: Yeah, and to be able to do it as cost-effectively as possible while still doing some degree of useful performance is, uh, is very important for those guys. Otherwise, it's a frustrating job.
1: Yeah, that makes sense cool so and you know, if our listeners want to find out more about dataset or for that matter sentinel 1 um, what what should they do uh,
0: fortunately the uh, it's right there in the name dataset.com or sentinel1.com uh, both good places to go i'm sure they linked to one another as well um, but in particular for dataset you know we do have free trials and we actually because of our our architecture our pricing is radically disruptive compared to some of the other offerings out there. So I definitely encourage people to get going with it and give it a shot because it's, uh, it's really a joy to use and it can also be quite cheap.
1: Great. Thank you very much. Uh, so John Hart is a distinguished engineer at Sentinel One. John, thank you for joining me today on Software Engineering Daily.